Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So my conversation with Nate ran way longer than I thought it would, which is great because what I've decided to do in the interest of keeping episodes shorter is to split it into two parts. So part two will really be all about our discussion of LeBron James and Michael Jordan. And today, in part one, Nate and I discuss trends in the league and Steph Curry. Hope you guys enjoy. Thinking Basketball Podcast, my name is Ben. And today, a very, very special episode. It's my first guest on this young podcast, and I think a very fitting guest. Uh, I've done his show twice now. He has one of the most popular uh, basketball podcasts on the web. Mr. Nate Duncan, thanks for coming. Hey, by. my pleasure. I mean, we had so much more stuff that we have to get to after your last appearance on my show. I've, I've been uh, foaming at the mouth for this. Yeah, it's really um, we've been talking offline a little bit about how to construct it because it feels like if you haven't heard uh my appearances on on dunked on this is really just a continuation of that it's less of like me having a guest on and talking to him and and more of we're gonna we're gonna jump back into uh the historical discussions and i think really today the the main focus that we'll get to is going to be this lebron versus jordan conversation that we tabled from last time but i I think we can uh segue into it with a few other stuff that we had to table yeah sounds good let's get started awesome so one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about before we go to all the historical conversations. You you just finished up your um, seasonal over-unders over that you and Danny do on Dunked On. And this is a discussion that I've had on Twitter now briefly, and it's just something that's been rolling around in my mind, which is this movement toward maybe a little bit more parity in terms of top teams, uh, maybe bottom teams getting better. And so as you guys go through those over-unders, you had a lot of unders on teams that had high lines, and even the teams that had high lines where you guys were like, okay, they might go over. There wasn't a lot of discussion of 62, 65, 67 wins. It came to my attention that the last time a team didn't hit 60 wins in the NBA was 2004 when Minnesota had 58, and that's actually the the lowest number in the three-point era. So I'm wondering... You know, where do you stand on this uh, idea that maybe we're going to see a little bit more parity this year? Maybe the the top teams won't be running away with 65 wins. Yeah, I I think there just isn't an individual team that looks that good. You know, the the Warriors, given where they are, number one, with this now being the fifth year of this run for many of their guys, certainly their core guys, uh, with already Draymond Green suffering minor injuries again, the fact that they just didn't address any weakness in a game that Steph Curry doesn't play. So, I mean, I think they're almost a 500 team without him, even though they have more talent. I think the pieces actually fit together extremely poorly. 
offensively when he's not there. So that that's part of it. Uh, I think with DeMarcus Cousins out, uh, their big man depth, especially if they're going to insist on playing Jones and Jarebko, is going to be a big problem too. Uh, and Kevin Durant doesn't exactly look like he, I mean, it's preseason, but he doesn't exactly look like he's locked in playing hard. Uh, but And also they didn't get the number one seed last year. And they won anyway, and right. so that's a, that's always another reason. We've seen this with these Cleveland teams too, where you know once you win without getting the number one seed, it's like ah, we can we don't need home court. You know, let's just kind of right. take it easy. Uh, so so I think that there's that aspect to it as well. I think the the other aspect to it is well, and I I picked the Warriors for 62 wins. I think they might still get to 60 if Curry plays enough games, but if not, you know, I, I don't think they will. And, and the preseason has not been particularly encouraging uh, from my standpoint. And then I think you're also just generally, while there does seem to be a team that gets to 60 wins, even sometimes surprise teams like the Raptors almost got there last year. You could look at like the Hawks in 2015, those sorts of teams. Uh, you're probably always better off betting against any individual team getting to 60 wins, unless it's just like, you're thinking before the season, this team is a historical juggernaut. And I don't see that with any of these teams this year. Right. So was Golden State your high total? At yes. 62? Yeah, I think I, I've got the the Rockets at either like 58 or 59. Let me get my prediction sheet up here. But uh, at, which, of course, uh, once I get that out, those are completely infallible. So take those as, as, as gospel, please. <laughs> Well, well, you're pulling those up. Um, so one of the directions that I've been thinking of this from is we've had a big influx of, of quality players in the last couple rookie drafts. These And, and this rookie class, again, looks like it's going to be uh, a, a serious uh, sort of block of contributors. And I think when you couple that with the fact that teams, you know, it's copycat league, right? So teams are catching up. They're, they're understanding how to play Maury Ball more. Uh, they're understanding how to use spacing. We're now seeing pace uh, coming back. I think when you put all those things together, to me, you kind of have a recipe for something that deviates from the like, okay, the number one team is 65, the number two team is 62, and you know we've got teams winning 12 games at the bottom of the uh, tankathon or something like that. I just don't think we're going to see a season like that. Yeah, I, I think so, and especially at the end of last year when you had so many teams that were – really trying to get into the last year of the old lottery system and just all clustered around one another as well. Although clustered around one another kind of in the 22 to 27 win range. Um, you know, I do think we'll see some team get hit with injuries and be unexpectedly bad, but yeah, it, it doesn't seem like there are teams that are just going to be, you know, I'm not picking anyone to be like below 20 wins or, or anything like that. Although I, I will say that when teams do decide to go for the tank these days, they are much more brazen. I mean, than really at any time in the lottery era. I know there was, you know, back in like the early '80s, before the lottery system, teams were really like uh, losing games intentionally, and that's why the lottery system came in. But I, I think now, because of the two-way contracts, as well in the last month of the season, and now you can play guys 13 through 17 on your roster instead of guys 11 through 15. Yeah. That like you could really make sure that there are no good players out there. So there, I think there is the ability to really tank uh, down the end. But I thought that the teams that really benefited from that last year were kind of the mid-range teams in the West, where you had to get 47 wins to get into the playoffs, uh, and even the East as well. We saw all the playoff teams over 500 
which you don't uh, always see. Uh, another another thing I wanted to get to that we sort of discussed offline and, and didn't touch on in, in our last installment was the idea of defensive and offensive asymmetries. Now, now we did discuss this at the high end, right? We said that the best offensive players are generally going to be able to have uh, a larger impact than the best defensive players. And, and you know, we can discuss how uh, historically the the interior defender sort of archetype may have had larger impact than he can have today with the game so spread out. But you had an interesting point that we didn't get to last time, which was about the bottom end. What what happens when you struggle on offense or you struggle on defense? Do you, do you want to uh, chime in with your theory? Yeah, on I that? think that the worst offensive players are a lot worse than the worst defensive players. And a couple thoughts there. I think base if you look at like ESPN's RPM, the best the absolute best players in the league usually have like a more extreme offensive RPM than the best uh, defensive players do. And then uh, same thing. I think, you know, you'll see that the best offensive RPM players seem to be, you know, more extreme there than you see the worst offensive or defensive RPM players. Um, So that gives me an idea. One thought, at least statistically, I'm not the most rigorous statistical analyst there but anecdotally i think there's a couple of reasons for that also one is well let me ask you this if so you agree with this this is my theory that hiding a bad defensive player in today's game is more easily accomplished than hiding uh, a bad offensive player yeah i'm not sure that's the area that i agree with i don't know if i can easily detect an asymmetry there. And that's why I thought it might be interesting for us to discuss before we dive into the historical stuff, because if you, so I looked at um, say like the last 20 years of adjusted plus minus yeah. data and the, the bottom, let's go through the bottom X, right? The bottom 10 players on average have about the same. They're like minus four, if you will, uh, offense and defense bottom 50 are about the same. They're like minus three and a half bottom hundred, the same bottom 500. So to me, what I'm looking at there is you can hide guys on offense and you can hide guys on defense, but I'm not sure if I can see an argument where you can, uh, for lack of a better way to phrase it, better, you know, better hide someone, if you will. That was the worst English ever, but you know what I mean. A couple of points there. One, I think it's very likely due to the way that everyone skews in favor of offense, despite what coaches ostensibly preach, is there's probably selection bias there. Right. If you're that bad of an offensive player to where, you know, you're, you would just have, you know, an incredibly negative adjusted plus minus on offense, you probably just don't even make the league to begin with. Right. Like, uh, uh, or you just, you know, the coach is like, this guy just looks so ridiculous out here trying to play offense. We're just not even going to play this guy. Um, whereas on defense, especially if you're doing well offensively, coaches will always, find a way if a guy's a good offensive player to get him on the floor, unless it's just, you know, the most extreme playoff crucible and teams just in general, you know, your regular season, 30 teams have enough trouble scoring that if you can score, no matter how bad you are defensively, like you're going to get playing time uh, on most teams. Um, So I think that's part of it. The other part, if you just think about it schematically, right? Like if you have a bad defender, okay, what can you do? Well, you can put him on the worst offensive player, 
all right, you know, certainly, especially again in the playoffs, they'll really go after that guy, force him to guard the ball with small, small pick and rolls, et cetera. But then you can still help that guy, right? Like you can you can bring guys over, you can double team, uh, you can bring guys in, into help position, you can try to rotate behind the ball, you can try to switch him out. There's all these things that you can do schematically. Whereas if a guy just can't score, well, you could say, okay, well, what's the equivalent of hiding him defensively well okay we're gonna not give him the ball well that doesn't really help much because now his guy especially under the new rules i think this has changed a lot in the last 20 years uh because with increased scouting but also just now that you can play zone uh you just not guard that guy and so there are a few things schematically you, that you can do and i think we saw like for example the warriors start working on some of these in last year's conference finals but i think it's much harder to just make a guy be guarded who has no offensive skill than it is to hide a guy who has no defensive skill. And then the last point I'd make too is like, I, if you had the worst offensive player in the league, uh, try to score against, uh, an average defender versus if you had, uh, the best offensive player in the league, try to score against an average defender. Is that, is that how I want to say it? Yeah, I I, I kind of get yeah. what you're yeah. saying. The, yeah, the, you yeah, it. the worst yeah. offensive player in the league just isn't going to score against anyone, right? Whereas the worst defensive right. player in the league, he's going to at least provide like some resistance. You know, I I think there's just like if you just look at the skill set, like Omer Ashik trying to score one on one in the post versus you know Doug McDermott trying to guard LeBron James one on one in the post. You know, I like Doug McDermott a little bit better there, even if you know it's still not great. So, okay, that's interesting. I think now we're getting somewhere on this. The, the first, uh, a couple thoughts. First, I think the idea that, um, I'm with you on this. I think the idea that the worst offensive players out there sort of aren't really seeing the court in this league. And I think it's because of that selection bias that I'm comfortable making statements like, I'm not sure when you actually get to the game, there's a significant asymmetry. With that said, you know, you touched on last year's playoffs, and I know that's something that uh, you've mentioned before. Th- let's talk a little bit more about this idea where when you get to the postseason, there's a there's a mismatch hunting concept that's starting to become very popular. It was, of course, all the discussion in the conference finals last year with the Rockets and the Warriors. But do, do you think that adds to this point you're making where nowadays, maybe not, certainly not 40 years ago, maybe not even 15 or 20 years ago, but in today's game, there's a there's a vulnerability that's larger with a weak defensive piece out there that that kind of is exposed in the postseason when you get to game plan. That's a, that's tough to say. I mean, you might with all the historical film that you've watched, you might be more qualified to answer this than I am because I haven't really gone back and watched a, a ton of historical games recently. You know, I don't remember the prevalence of say the small small pick and roll to get like the worst uh, player onto uh you know your star uh that i think well they're they're certainly they're certainly switching more yeah. now so um yeah I, I think the thrust of my question is even about what's happened in the last couple of years because i just i just see this thought out there that uh you know you can defenses switch and you can mismatch hunt and therefore uh, carmelo anthony maybe is a good example not that i've ever uh, rushed to his defense but there's an idea that if you put him on the court 
they're going to find them and expose them, and that's going to massively spike offensive efficiency. And I'm not sure I'm sold yet on that being the the future wave of basketball. Yeah, and there are always counters uh, that are going to emerge, and I, I think these new rules as well, how that fits into the switching. I think part of like the, the competition committee probably didn't like the number of ISOs that had to happen in that Golden State-Houston series, and a lot of that I think was because when they would switch and guys would try to cut, they would just get held or, you know, the screening action really became less effective because of that. So they really are, are focusing in. So, uh, you know, I think that a lot of that mismatch happening uh, or hunting happens because your conventional stuff isn't working as well. You know, I don't know that coaches really love doing that type of stuff. Um, I think, yeah. Well, you can induce it yeah. too. That, I thought Houston did that well last year, right? They'd switch Harden onto a big, and Harden's value as a post defender certainly isn't much worse than his value as a perimeter defender. And they would just induce these Taj Gibson posts up, post ups all the time. And it's like that—that's maybe not what you want. No, to do. I, I, and I think that's an important distinction. The the Wolves in particular won it, and I thought that Houston not only did a great job of switching, but then they did a great job of loading up. Uh, on those isos and then when you look at how effective houston was when teams would switch then what's the difference between houston and minnesota well houston's spreading the floor you know you've talked about this how you know james harden is just this supercharged 30 point 10 assist guy that you know really just couldn't exist in previous eras and part of that is just due to the philosophy of hey we're going to spread the floor and let this guy go to work and so now all of a sudden if you've got the floor spread isolation basketball maybe can become more efficient because you can't stay in front of the guy and then you have to help. And now you're giving up an open three pointer. Whereas if you're say a team in 2010 or the 2018 Minnesota Timberwolves, you just don't have enough spacing to make that isolation play effective. Even if the guy at the point of attack, isn't the strongest defender. Right, right, right. So, so I I think we're close to segueing back into uh, how this applies to historical players. So this is good, but I think the final point, uh, to close the loop maybe here on this is to say that everything that you just described, you still need an engine like Harden or LeBron or maybe a handful oh, of yeah. other players to kind of write to run that system effectively. So even though it's something that was focused and on, under a spotlight in last year's playoffs, I'm not convinced that that's the future direction of offense as, as we move forward with this pace and space, Mori ball kind of trend that we've seen in the last few years. Well, yeah, I mean, and again, this is something that we wanted to talk about too, is that, you know, is it just a totally different game when you get into right. the final four? Where Because playing conventionally, I mean, Utah did a pretty decent job against Houston, but most teams playing conventionally, I mean, maybe if you have, you know, the absolute best rim protector in the NBA, you can get away with this, or you have a great system like the Spurs, but... Generally, you're not going to be able to stop a, a Houston or a Golden State really with a conventional system, and so you know you have to get, you're getting into these matchups where the teams all have enough shooting and enough superstars on one hand, and then defensively they have the personnel to switch everything on the other end, and that's just such a powerful combination that if you don't have both of those things, you're really just not a serious championship contender, and. So that there are maybe three or four teams in the league. You know, if you look at this year, Houston, Golden State, Boston, maybe Toronto. You know, those are probably the four teams you would look at that fall into that category. We'll see how the Lakers end up. uh, But they're probably a little bit below there, especially on the shooting standpoint. 
And so if you have all those things, you're just playing a completely different game than the rest of the NBA. It seems like that to me. And the question I wanted to ask you on the show previews we didn't get to is, you know, is that is from a stylistic standpoint, from a talent standpoint, is was that true in previous eras where really the conference finals and the finals look different than the first round or a regular season game in terms of style, in terms of talent, uh, or is that a relatively recent invention? Well, first, I hope you don't get too much hate mail from Philadelphia for for leaving them out of the the potential Final Four. Yeah. Candidates. Well, I mean, maybe um, they maybe they get there, but they're not going to get there by playing the sort of spacing switching style with great creators that I was talking about. I mean, it, it, they they will have to do it a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, to, to to answer the question, I don't think. I don't think as much changed uh, back then, whether it was 15 or 20 years ago or 40 years ago, as we see today. But I, I'm definitely interested. So so to connect this back to uh, my all-time player series, the way I approach regular season versus playoffs, forget the final four for a second, just that transition. When you get into the playoffs, to me, there are a couple huge differences that occur from the regular season. The first, of course, is you get to game plan for someone. You get to be tactical about how you attack vulnerabilities on the same team throughout a series. The second is you play the same team. Your sample sizes are like N equals one or N equals two. You just play the same team and run it back. And when you run it back, there's these natural learning curves. So, you know, you start with strategy, then you have a counter, then you have a counter to the counter, et cetera, et cetera. And so with certain players, not much changes because they can handle counters. Their game is, I, I've described it as robust before, right? Like it's its pretty hard to take away. With other guys, there's an ability to take certain things away. I think Carl Malone was a guy I, I highlighted in that situation. And then certain players, their just game is so rich that they seem to thrive uh, in those situations. So the, the point I'm making here and, and want you to weigh in on is uh, the regular season to, to the playoffs doesn't even always have that big of a shift outside of those two factors, but sometimes people will ramp up a little bit. Sometimes people will ramp down. And I think that concept holds true for teams, right? Like if you look at a team's regular season performance, it's generally predictive of the playoffs. Some are going to be a little better than the indicators and some a little worse, probably for those same reasons, cough, cough, the Utah jazz and Jerry Sloan. Yeah. And you know, if you have a very intricate system, I think that you're relying on, you know, I always call them system buckets, right? Where you're just, you're getting a guy a wide open layup essentially because you're fooling the defense, right? And so, or because you're just executing so well. Uh, but, you know, a lot of it just comes down to just not being prepared and being surprised. And in a playoff setting, especially as you get later into a series, those buckets become harder to come by now maybe transition doesn't necessarily you know and that's that's a way to still get easy buckets that's harder to control but especially in the half court you know and even golden state you'll see you know when they run their split cut action and they get backdoor layups and just you know buckets that occur because of good offense but also you know there's a component of a defensive mistake in there those uh, seem less prevalent uh as you get into the playoffs and then certainly deeper into a playoff series so let's let's use that as a springboard to talk about someone like Steph Curry, where, in your opinion, do you think that when you get to the playoffs, he's getting fewer easy buckets or maybe more germane 
he's generating fewer easy buckets with his gravity, misdirection, and creation than in the regular season. Because I'm not sure at first blush from a distance that it seems like there's that much of a difference. What do you think? Well, so much of this comes down to the health as well, right? If you look at the 2016 playoffs, the 2016 finals, where you know he didn't play nearly at the level as he did in that 2016 regular season, uh, you know that's certainly there's an element of that again last year it wasn't at his best in that rocket series although in game seven obviously uh he was awesome I, I think there is a component where just going later into the playoffs against better defensive teams that because they have the ability to switch I mean you really just can't guard Steph Curry I mean the Celtics maybe when they had Avery Bradley and Marcus Smart was I mean, the closest we've seen a team come to actually guarding him conventionally and succeeding uh, but unless you have the personnel to switch well and the discipline to switch well, you're probably not going to be able to stop Steph Curry at full health. Uh, and so, yeah, you do take away a little of that stuff. But I think his playoff performance and his team's playoff performance generally has been very good with the caveat that I think, you know, this is just subjective. I, I haven't done the math on this, but that he is subject just because he makes so many spectacular plays and takes so many difficult crazy shots and you know we'll get in the lane he's got this kind of magic component to his game where you're like oh man I can't believe that he's doing this type of stuff that no one else is doing well when he fails at that it's just so memorable or he'll have like some really bad shooting games and like there's this feeling of like oh wait the magic is over right like you even now in the 30s when he can just look so bad sometimes when it's not working for him that I think that that really sticks with people because and and then just the almost like uh, how unreal it is when he's going well you're just like oh this can't continue no nobody else plays like this like everyone is just you know primed it seems like for the regression and then if it comes in a couple of games you know i mean like it, that 2015 finals for example you know he really only had one terrible game which was game 2 where he's like you know 5 out of 23 right. or something but everyone remembered that and then he, he should have been the mvp of that series and he wasn't uh because i think that you know the narrative happened early in the, the series of, oh, you know, he's playing really poorly. And then they switched Iguodala into the starting lineup. And so it was like, oh, well, he must have been the difference. And that's, that's why we're going to make him the MVP. So I've said this before, and I'll, I'll reiterate it here so we can dive in on it. 2016 Steph Curry, before the injury, the level he was playing at in the regular season, that to me was up there with the all-time greatest peaks for a single season in NBA history, possibly exceeding or certainly challenging, uh, I would say 2000 Shaq and pick your favorite season from Michael Jordan and LeBron. Is that, are, are, am I leaving anyone else out of that discussion? And is that sound far fetched to you in terms of Curry, the way he was playing before the injury? Well, I think there are some who would say some of those wilt seasons, but I, I think your, your research has somewhat debunked how good of an offensive player he was just because his teams just weren't that good offensively. And he, he wasn't really creating for anyone else. Um, you know, the Adrian Dantley disease kind of uh, where, where he, his numbers look really efficient and he has high usage, but his team just, you know, isn't scoring that well. Um, in terms of a regular season. Yeah. You know, I think I, I would have to say that, uh, you know, especially when you throw in how clutch he was, you know, it, just in terms of the value created, like, I think that's something that, you know, may not be, repeatable uh but did happen that season you know they got to 73 wins on the back of him doing that stuff late in games 
Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that may be the greatest offensive season of all time. Certainly, you know, Shaq playing at, at, uh, an actual motivated level, LeBron, uh, Jordan provided more defensively than Curry. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's the best offensive season of my lifetime, especially because, you know, they didn't really have like that much else offensively on that team and they're still killing people. And then you see what happens when he goes off the floor and like it all falls apart for them. I and mean, it's basically been the case for his entire career. Right. I- I'm not sure that's the, that's the element that the general public realizes. Like when he goes off the court, they're not terrible, but there- there's not a lot of magic happening. And when he's on the court, you're talking about some of the greatest offenses of all time. I, I actually, I, I sort of conjured him up in a hypothetical years ago before he existed because when we talked about, you know, Shaq and he was only a 50% free throw shooter or how would Jordan do if you gave him more possessions and a three point shot, you start to get into a math game, right? Like adding 20% to Shaq's free throw percentage gets him X number of points more. And so the hypothetical I used to always come up with, it was like, let's say there's a short guy who does nothing but shoot threes from 35 feet and he hits him at like 50% and he takes like 15 a game. You're talking about a guy who all other things being equal would be the most valuable player ever. And that's kind of what 2016 Steph Curry turned into. He, he like led the league in scoring rate and scoring efficiency. It it was, it was mathematically kind of breaking the game. Yeah. And it was a, unbelievable leading games and you know his team the offense when he was on the floor was just unbelievable too i mean that's always the other component too is like how's the team playing as you've you've highlighted so yeah i mean i i would put him in that category again though you know if you just go and watch his like highlights from that season and you do wonder a little bit of like okay was this just a hot streak you know something we talked about the other day uh was well you know what is your standard really for measuring the greatest of all time right and it seems like for a lot of people it's did it long enough that it wasn't a fluke and then how good were you over that period you know and so i think that probably isn't long enough whereas Shaq, it was like okay he was this good in 2000 and you know that's because he was in shape but he clearly had the talent to get there he just had to get in shape so it wasn't a fluke you know he's just dunking everything around the rim you know there's there's you can't say that's lucky you know the way you can with just bombing these absolutely ridiculous three pointers the way Curry was, and really I don't think you know while he's has flashes of that every now and then. I mean, just the fact like you know what did he make like five or six shots from like half court or more in that season, and you know I think he's made maybe like one or two since then. You know, just like like little things like that, just the magic of that season. I think there is a fluke component to it, uh, although certainly you know some of his numbers in the seasons around there are close uh at least in terms of his on off impact but not quite you know to the individual level that he had that year and certainly not making just the ridiculous like memorable shots that he made that year either well that's yeah i think that's that's an element worth discussing he i can't remember the exact stat but he had they they tracked some you know outside of 27 feet or something like that he was hitting like 60 percent of threes and that that is unsustainable to a degree so you you can call that fluky but my contention, and this has been really sort of overrun by Kevin Durant's arrival, my contention is that in 17, definitely last year for a while when he was healthy, in 18, and even his play in 2015, like, like this is top of the league kind of stuff. And yet, as we briefly mentioned or discussed offline, like 
I, I feel like I'm out on an island saying that this guy's in contention for the best player in the league. You look at a lot of top 10 lists, they have him like fourth or fifth or, you know, something like that. And a lot of people think Kevin Durant is just clearly better. Do, do you, do you, where do you tend to come down on that uh, debate? Uh, there's a lot of components to it. I think Curry probably is, is better. Um, you know, they certainly have performed better with Curry in the lineup and without Durant than vice versa over the last few years. Now, Durant would be the first to tell you, and he's correct about this, that the system is built around Steph Curry. Uh, that's true, but also then they just have never had any kind of decent personnel to replace him. I mean, they have never even had like another decent pick and roll point guard on the roster, you know, uh, since, yeah. I mean, even going back to the Mark Jackson days. So the on-off is always going to look better for him uh, because they're just they've been so flawed anytime he goes out, and that's going to be the case again this year as well. I think that because they have played the Cavaliers in the finals these two years, I think that Kevin Durant is a more valuable player against Cleveland due to his ability to guard LeBron okay at, at times and the fact that Cleveland you know is pretty experienced dealing with Curry you know uh and that they would they really focused on taking him away a ton and didn't really focus on taking Durant away and it's really tough to focus on taking Durant away given the way he plays and so you know taking Curry away uh that opens stuff up for everyone else and the Warriors generally uh except at the very end of that 2016 series uh, have scored quite well against Cleveland uh, uh, with the exception of 2015. So uh, I think that it's just set up for KD to look a lot better against Cleveland. Uh, but, you know, if you go back to most of these other series, uh, I think Curry has generally been more valuable. Maybe in the, you could make an argument in that Houston series, the other big one that they had, who was better. But Curry, again, was just coming off uh, an injury. So that's uh, maybe not entirely fair to him. At that point, so no, I, I do. If you had to say who would you rather have on your team, I would say probably Steph Curry would still be the answer for me. Okay, but it's a that's a great point you just pointed out. I think in terms of narrative development, right? Because uh, Durant is if if you had Durant with no Curry, a it's not guaranteed that that team's going to roll through the playoffs and play Cleveland anyway. And B the way Cleveland would attack Durant would be totally different than the team with Curry that rolls over everyone and then kind of like can turn to Durant as a, as someone to showcase or specialize in certain matchups. And because that matchup keeps happening in the finals versus, uh, you know, when everyone's looking and all the lights are on versus any of the other series or matchups that they could play probably feeds into this idea. It's really strange to me that Golden State has three titles, four finals appearances, more wins than anyone ever. And yet people talk about the fact that Steph Curry has zero final MVPs. <laughs> so. Yeah, although I think he probably should have won in 2015. And, and that would probably yeah. reduce that a little bit. But uh, yeah. Well, I think I think it should be a playoff MVP anyway. I, yeah. I, it's always frustrated me that they don't do that. Um, it, one, it opens yourself up to picking someone who had like an incredible three series. You could pick a loser from the finals team. But two, I think that's just more in the spirit of what people are interested in. Like you have a four game sweep in 2007 and you give Tony Parker the finals MVP. What, what kind of historical significance does that convey 
about the season, the playoffs, or that team. I'm curious as to how you feel about that. Yeah, well, I think the league just wants the finals to be a big deal, right? I mean, and and they want it to be, okay, we're presenting this trophy afterwards. We want it to be a coronation for the guy who was just most recently good. Like, they don't want to, like, it just, from a, a storytelling standpoint, like, oh, yeah, remember how good Tim Duncan was? Uh, two rounds ago against the Suns in, in 2007, it's like, you know, it's not as interesting, right? And, and so a, a lot of people also just only tune in for the finals. And so it's like, wait, uh, Tony Parker was way better than Tim Duncan in this series. Like, why is Duncan getting it? Like, I I don't remember seeing that. You know, so I, I think it's just, yeah. just kind of easier. Um, and then also, like, they definitely don't want it to be someone on a team that's not in the finals, number one, or from the losing team, too. I mean, it's just like, all right, now let's go into the weeping, losing locker room for the presentation of the finals MVP. Like it just, the optics just don't work for that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm in you agreement with you. you. Know. If we want to actually measure things historically, I would much prefer to do it that way. But I, I, I think those are the reasons why it's unrealistic. You, you don't miss the, the Jim Gray days of heading into the <laughs> losing locker room with pen, penetrating questions about how they feel? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I they still kind of do that sometimes anyway, but it's just like... Yeah, there. Uh, it doesn't seem things like that are all PR, you know, more than it is like, oh, let's look back in thirty years. I mean, the, you know, the All Star team is the same way. There's a, a ton of things like yeah, that, yeah. which you know, I wish were. It was just acknowledged that that was the purpose, and that we could, you know, divorce ourselves from the fact that Joe Johnson, you know, made eight All Star teams when we're talking about his Hall of Fame candidacy because the East sucked during that time. I'm going to need a minute to regroup after hearing about Joe Johnson making eight. I, I don't remember how many it was, it, but it's around that number. <laughs> oh, man. So that that seems like a good place to stop. Uh, I still have not recovered from remembering that Joe Johnson made, he didn't actually make eight all-star teams. He made seven. But nonetheless, uh, I, I've sought medical attention, and I think I'm going to be able to power through so let's pause there. Part two, I will release relatively soon. I got to edit it and get it up and everything like that. But uh, that was part one. If you guys enjoyed that, remember all of these podcasts are really only made possible by patrons over at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash thinking basketball. It's in the show notes. It's on my Twitter profile. If you want to contribute, you want to support. And I've worked on a bunch of other stuff over the summer that hopefully will be coming soon and made available to all you guys who support the show. It's very much appreciated. And until then, I will see you in the next episode. Hope you guys are having a great day.